man. Of course, the days of the judges were a very, very dark time in the history of Israel. As that 350 to 400 years, we see that the children of Israel, God's people, had done what was right in their own eyes. In other words, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And we saw the result of that has been that they have found themselves in bondage to their enemies. They have found themselves being greatly distressed and and impoverished. And if there's one lesson that we've learned so far and will continue to learn as we go through this book, that any time that an individual, a group of people, a nation decides to do what is right in their own eyes, and is doing that which is contrary to the ways of the Lord and and, uh, the way that God wants us to live, it's going to have consequences in bringing impoverishment to us spiritually. We're going to find ourselves being poor spiritually. We're going to find ourselves being in bondage and captivity to the things of the world, to, to sin, and it's just bad news. And that's what we're seeing here that's happening to the children of Israel. God had told them that you walk my ways and that you're going to continue in the blessings and the fullness of what I have for you. If you forsake me and go after those false gods, this is what's going to happen. And so exactly as God's word was declared to them, we are seeing come to pass here in the book of Judges. They're experiencing the consequences of sin and all of that because of their disobedience and because of their forsaking the Lord and going after that which is false. And so we see that continued as we finish um, the story of, of uh, Gideon. And we saw that a nation that had turned after the days of Gideon, how he delivered them from the Midianites, uh, the days of Abimelech, and how once again it was terrible dark times because they were a nation that reverted right back into idol worship. And so chapter 10, what we saw that as the children of Israel found themselves being oppressed to the people of Ammon, that they cried out to the Lord. And as they cried out to the Lord, the Lord answered them and said, Listen, since you are ones that are worshiping these false gods, why don't you call out to the false gods and let them deliver you? And one of the things that we see throughout the Old Testament is they were in the, that time of where they were worshiping idols and going after that which was false. It was the prophets that came along on the scene, as you see in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and those books of the, of the prophets. And they would declare to the children of Israel, why are you going after those false idols? Why are you uh, desiring to continue in that? Because they will not deliver you from the bondage that you're in, from the difficulties that you're experiencing. And so those idols that you worship, they may have ears, but they don't hear. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have a mouth, but they don't speak. You have to carry that idol around. And so it was the Lord saying, turn back to me. Uh, Turn back and understand once again and realize that I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one with a mighty hand brought you into the land uh, that has been given to you. I have blessed you and I want to continue to bless you. And so the foolishness of going after that which is false. And that's what the Lord was saying in chapter 10 as we ended last time. That if you are so set on worshiping those false gods of the Canaanites, Why don't you call on those false gods? Why don't you let them deliver you? But not one instance or example do we ever see in the Old Testament of those false gods helping the children of Israel. They only made things worse. It was a false hope. It it was a false fulfillment and satisfaction that they were involved in. And you see, any time in this day that we go after anything that is false, 
that it is a false hope that we are putting our trust in. It is false fulfillment and satisfaction that we will find. You may have pleasure for a season, but the end of its way is going to be bondage, being impoverished, being poor spiritually, just as we've seen them happen. Well, the children of Israel cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, we're going to put away our idols. And they did, and they truly repented. And, of course, repentance would, will show in their being action. And that's what they did. And it, we saw in verse 16 of chapter 10 that they put away the foreign gods from among them, served the Lord, and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. And so they truly repented in, at this time, in putting away those false gods. And so the Lord in his grace and mercy is going to raise up another judge. This is a cycle that we see them in in this period of 400 years, turning away from the Lord and then calling out to the Lord, repenting, and then God raises up a judge to deliver them out of the bondage that they find themselves in. And so verse 17 of chapter 10, Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead, and the children of Israel assembled together and encamped at Mizpah. And the people and the leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so here is Ammon, uh, that that group of people that are on the east side of the Jordan River. And so what we're going to see is review how the children of Israel, particularly the tribe of Gilead, took over that area that once belonged to the Amorites. And so here they are. They're oppressing the children of Israel. They're ready to go to war, but they don't have anybody to lead them, the children of Israel, into that war. And so now we're going to be introduced now to Jephthah. He is going to be raised up by the Lord to lead the children of Israel out of their bondage and into victory against the Amorites. And so chapter 11, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begot Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's son grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob, and worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. So Jephthah here, as we see, He's from Gilead. Remember that when the children of Israel came into the promised land there in the book of Joshua, and they did battle, they took the land, and it was the seven and a half tribes that are on the west side of the Jordan River that had their their allotment, um, their inheritance given to them. But there was uh, still, or it was nine and a half tribes on the west side. There was two and a half tribes there on the east side. And one of those tribes was the tribe of Gilead. And it was the children of Israel that had defeated the, the kings of the Amorites on the east side. And so that inheritance was given to them. So here it is some 300 years later. And they're in bondage, the, the people there on the east side, uh, they're in Gilead, and they're in bondage to, to the enemy. And here is Jephthah, he is a Gileadite, and he was born to a harlot. And it was his family, his brothers or his half-brothers, that would drive him out of his home. They said, you have no inheritance with us, and so he would go to that area right across the border, up into that area today known as Syria, in the area of Tob. And there he's an outcast. There he's been forsaken by his brothers. He has no inheritance, he has been told. And you see, that was a big deal back then. 
to have an inheritance was everything, to be able to continue the family name. And, and um, it was an important part of their, of their culture and of their life. And all that has been taken away from Jephthah. He's been driven out from his, his half-brothers there. It's interesting that Jephthah is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 in the Hall of Faith. So he is a man that is a man of faith, and he is a man that, here the scripture says, he's a mighty man of valor. Now isn't that interesting? It's a little bit different situation than it was with uh, Gideon. Gideon, he was hiding from the Midianites there in chapter 6 of Judges, and he's at the wine press hiding uh, because he's afraid of the Midianites. And then the angel of the Lord came to Gideon and says, Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor. You're going to free the children of Israel from the Midianites. And you know the response of Gideon, don't you? It was, who me? Who am I to deliver the, the, the children of Israel from the Midianites? I, I'm nothing. I'm the least of my family. My family's the least in my tribe. But here we see that Jethro, he was a man that joined in with these guys and with a, a group of raiders. And these are not like the Oakland raiders, okay? These guys are going out on raids, and they're probably crossing the border doing battle, perhaps against the, the Amorites uh, there. Um, we don't know for sure, but he does have a name, and they are going to be familiar with him. He begins to get a reputation of being a mighty man of valor at this point. And so here, the children of Israel, keep in mind, uh, the Gileadites, they are wanting to find somebody that's going to lead them against this bondage and oppression that they're in. And so here is Jephthah, a little background given about him. Uh, He's been in that area of Todd. He's been driven out by his family. But it says in verse 4, it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. And then Jephthah went to the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. And so we see here, um, they come to Jephthah, and they said, the Ammonites have been uh, wanting to come to war. They gathered the war against us. We don't have anybody to lead us. Now, remember that Ammon and the Ammonites, or the Amorites, were ones that were descendants of Lot. Back in the book of Genesis, Abraham had a nephew named Lot, and Lot was in Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was taken out, uh, him and his daughters, uh, out of that place and were spared. But it was Lot that had that incestuous relationship with his daughters. And out of that came the descendants of the Ammonites. Out of that came the descendants of the Moabites. We know that Edom, the Edomites on the east side of the uh, Jordan River down to the south, 
they were ones who were descendants of Esau. So just a little bit of background about Ammon and, and where their descendants came from. And so they come to Jephthah and they say, listen, lead us into to battle and the fighting. And Jephthah, kind of his response was, didn't you drive me out of my home? You know, don't you guys hate me and now you're coming to me? And so Jephthah, he would agree to go, but he said, I want you to make me your leader, that I truly am going to lead these, these men against the Ammonites and the Amorites and whoever else. The Philistines also are mentioned here in the previous chapter coming and holding them in the bondage. I want you to make me the leader in fighting against the enemy here. And so they would agree to do that. But I think there's a couple things in this that we can learn from. And number one is that as you are a man or a woman of faith, and again, remember Jephthah is mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. But as you are dedicated to the Lord, there's going to be times where you're going to feel like you're being driven out. That you're going to be even driven out from family members that are going to say to you, you have no inheritance. You know what? We don't want anything to do with you. And, and, and it, it's hard and it's difficult. That had to be hard for Jephthah. For his brothers to say, you know what? You're out of here. And you have no inheritance with us. And we don't even want you in the land. We want you to go somewhere else up into what was, you know, today known as Syria. And it was Jephthah that would go and he would dwell there, knowing that he had been rejected by his family. And I know that there perhaps are maybe some that are here even tonight, that when you made a decision to surrender your heart to Jesus Christ and to walk in his ways, that you feel like that maybe there were some in your family that drove you out that were hard on you, that said, we don't want anything to do with you. Maybe those at work that will do the same thing, or maybe even old friends, whatever it might mean. And those are very difficult times that we can go through. But you know what? There is that that takes place as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword and separate mother against daughter and son against father and in other words, as you follow me and I am preeminent in your life, the most important relationship that you have is the Lord Jesus Christ. Then at times it is going to bring separation. It might be the family members or the friends or the co-workers or whoever it might be. So here's Jetha, but here's the other thing to think about. Jetha could have responded by saying, you know what, stick it in your ear. I'm not going to go and fight for you guys. Matter of fact, I just might go join the Ammonites and fight against you. What if I did that? He could have been very bitter, couldn't he? Very bitter to the point of he could have said, you guys are on your own in the way that you've treated me and what you've done to me. And the thing about it is he didn't. He was going to do what God had called him to do. And I think there's a very important lesson that for you and for me that don't become bitter when you respond to those difficult things and situations and times. Because you know what? People will come against you and I. That's just the way it's going to be as Christians. And I hope that as Christians that we don't fall into the mindset that perhaps is conveyed so oftentimes in Christianity today that being a Christian means that you're to be cool and just to relate to everybody. Jesus said the world's going to hate you because it hated me first. And he gave us warning about the cost and, and all these different things as we follow him and pick up our cross and, and, and become true to followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. Those things are going to happen. But you know what oftentimes will happen? Is those people that were hard on you and pushed you away, 
that they will come to you in their hour of need. When they understand that they have nothing to turn to of substance, of real strength, and that will give them answers. And when they see how you've lived your life, and that is you've lived a life after the Lord and following Him, and a life of peace and a life of wisdom, that they will come to you and ask for help. I guarantee it will happen at times. It may be years. That's what happened with Jephthah. And that neighbor, all of a sudden, who's going through a very difficult time, finding themselves in bondage to something, or maybe a family member, or maybe a co-worker, you'll be surprised that they come knocking on your door or tapping you on the shoulder and saying, I was just wondering if I could talk to you. And I've watched you and how you lived your life. And I was wondering if you could talk to me. And I hope that none of us would respond with bitterness and anger. But we would respond with opportunity, that this is an opportunity to share with them the truths and the things about the Lord and about what he has to say about their situation in introducing them to the one who has freed you, the one who has saved you and forgiven you. So Jephthah here, he, he gets this, and he says, Make me leader, and they do. And so verse 12, Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? And the, people of the, and the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as Jabbok and to the Jordan, but therefore restored those lands peaceably. So here is the king of Ammon that's going back to a situation that we read about there in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 21. Remember when Moses, there at the end of the 40-year wilderness wandering, that he brought the children of Israel up to Kadesh, to the border there. And he's going to go into the promised land. And so he asked the Edomites, can we pass through your land? We won't go to the left or to the right. We're not going to eat of your vineyards. We're not going to take of your cattle or of your land. And the king of Edom said, no. And so the Edomites, again, being descendants of Esau, the Lord said, I don't want you to go to war against them. I want you to go around. So they went around, came up and came down along the border of Ammon and also of Moab. And there Moses, again, we're going to see as the account is given, would ask that they would pass peaceably through the land. We're not going to take from you. We're not going to invade you. But it was those kings of the Ammonites that would go to war against the children of Israel. And so he continues here that, as they said, restore those lands. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, verse 15, and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. And when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. And then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. And they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom. That is, we saw that they, in their routes, as we studied those chapters there in Numbers, that they went around Edom. They became very discouraged at that time. And it was at that time they began to murmur and complain against the Lord again. And they came to the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, 
for to Arnon was the border of Moab. In verse 19, Then Israel sent messengers to Shihon king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land into our place. But Shihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Shihon gathered all his people together and camped at Jahaz and fought against Israel. So in that account in Numbers chapter 21, that you recall again that Moses said to the king of of King Og and Shihon, let us pass through. They said, no, we're going to go to war against you. So Israel utterly would defeat them. And it was at that time that, again, it was those tribes of, of Gilead and Reuben and half of the tribe of Manasseh that came to Moses and said, we really like it up here in this hill country, and it'd be good for us. Can we have this as an inheritance? And so the Lord permitted that to take place. And so that would be given to them. And so then in Numbers chapter 22, as we read in verse 22, they took the possession of all the territory of the Amorites, then from Anon to Jabbok, and then from the wilderness to the Jordan. And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Will you not possess whatever Shamash your God gives to you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God takes possession on before us, we will possess. And so what we see here is that um, this story being accounted, it is Jephthah that said, listen, if your God Shamas is really God, isn't he going to give you back the land? Why don't you go in and possess what is yours? Why doesn't he help you? The Lord's going to give us what he wants us to possess, and that's what we've done. And so verse 25, now he begins to to make account of what we have in Numbers chapters 22 through 25, as he says, And now are you better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? You remember that story that it was, again, Balak, the king of Moab, that he saw the children of Israel there. He said, I can't defeat these guys. So he hires Balaam to come and to curse them. But Balaam doesn't curse them because God wouldn't allow that. So Balaam pronounced blessings on them. But what happened was this, is that as you recall in Numbers chapter 25, that it was Balak that came to Balaam, or Balaam came to Balak, the king of Moab, and said, listen, if you, I can't curse them. God won't let me. And if you really want to get at them, this is what you do. You send your, your women into the camp of Israel, seduce the men, introduce idol worship, and God will judge them. And that's exactly what happened. So he's making reference to that. He said, did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? What he did is he would introduce those women, idolatry and immorality, to where God would judge Israel, but then after that, we see that the children of Israel would defeat the king of Moab, Balak, and the Moabites. And so, verse 26, while Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages in Aroer and its villages, and in all the cities along the banks of the Arnon, for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? He's saying, why are you coming back 300 years later and wanting your land back? And so, therefore, I have not sinned against you, but you have wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord the judge render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. And so, we've had this land for 300 years. God gave it to us. If your God, Shamash, is really the true God, he would have given it back to you at this time. But we haven't done anything wrong. And so, they did not heed the words of Jephthah. Here's the thing. When you talk to people, 
oftentimes that, that when they're unbelievers or in rebellion against the Lord, that oftentimes they will not heed your word. You still give them truth. You still bring correction. You still instruct them in the things of God, but not everybody's going to listen to you. Not everybody's going to listen to me. We know that to be true, don't we? We pray that they would, but oftentimes they don't. And they don't heed to the words that we speak to them. Jesus, when he gave that greatest sermon there to, I believe, one individual, and that was Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And talking to Nicodemus about that, Nicodemus, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, the son of man, is going to be lifted up just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness. And he went on to say to Nicodemus that the son, that is the light, is coming to the world, speaking of himself. But the world loved the darkness rather than the light because the light exposed their darkness and they'd rather be in the darkness and do their evil deeds. Sometimes it comes down to to where people desire to just be in the darkness and continue in their evil deeds, and that's what Jesus said. And the light that you bring to them may expose them, but they want to continue in that darkness, in that rebellion. They want to continue in that um, doing uh, those things contrary to what the Lord would have them to do in the ways of the Lord. You keep praying for them. and keep praying for them that the Lord will turn them back and they'll be open to the Lord at some time. And so here they did not heed the voice of Jephthah, and so they're going to go to war, verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and passed through Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced towards the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Now remember verse 30 here. If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah advanced towards the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he did defeat it from, from a roer as far as Minmith, 20 cities, and to Abel Karamim with a great slaughter. And thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And so verse 34, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child beside her. He had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. Now here's the scene. He goes to war against the people of Ammon. He brings great victory to the, the, the Gileadites, and, and they're free from the people of Ammon. God delivers them once again. But before he goes to battle, he makes this interesting vow to the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, we saw that when you gave a vow, you were to keep that vow, right? That oath, you, you were to keep it. We saw the guidelines given there in the Old Testament law. And so here he makes this vow, Lord, if you give me victory, when I come back home from that victory, whatever comes out of my house, the first thing that I'm going to offer it as a burnt offering. Now, remember what a burnt offering is? A burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 1 is they would take that animal and they would take the animal and it would be put on the altar and the whole animal would be consumed by fire. It was a sacrifice. It was an offering 
of worship, a devotion to the Lord. It has symbolized that worshiper offering that sacrifice, that free will sacrifice, that, Lord, I give you all of my heart. I give you all of my life. Complete devotion and worship to you, Lord. That's what it symbolized. And here at Jephthah, he's saying, the first thing that comes out of my house, I'm going to offer as a burnt offering. I don't know what he's thinking or why he made that vow. There's been volumes written about on this vow, but I don't know if he's thinking, you know, a chicken's going to come out or, you know, a little lamb's going to come running out. You know, back in those days, they had animals going back and forth. I don't know what he's thinking. But he makes that vow, and then all of a sudden his daughter, his only child, comes out to see her dad come back from from victory, dancing and, and worshiping and And he grieves. He says, oh, my daughter, you brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I've given my word on the Lord. I cannot go back on it. So verse 36, she said to him, my father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. And then she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. And so he said, go, and he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. So what has taken place here? You're thinking, really, did they carry out this vow? Again, that volumes and volumes haven't been written on this. One of the things that as he made this rash vow, that it reminds me of what Jesus said, that as Jesus would say that, you know what, don't make these these oaths, these vows. And in Matthew chapter 6, as he is saying that, he is also connecting it with, you know, don't, give this vow, give this oath to, you know, the footstool of the earth and all of this. What he was addressing was that the religious leaders would play games with their oaths and with their vows. And they would swear unto this, but if I sweared unto that, I didn't really have to keep it. And so Jesus says, just don't even do that. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. That's all you need to do. And it isn't that I don't think he was making, uh, you know, to where he completely said, you never ever give an oath or a vow. Because when we go in a court of law, we're under oath, aren't we, to tell the truth. We know that Jesus was under oath as he was on trial. We know that Paul was under oath as he was on trial as well in the book of Acts. So when we go and testify in a court of law, we give an oath that we're going to tell the truth. When two people get married, they give vows, don't they? That they're going to love each other for the rest of their lives. But Jesus is saying something very interesting. He's saying, don't play games with your vows and with your oaths, is what he was saying, like the religious leaders do. But what you do is let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, you be a man or a woman of your word. And I think there's good wisdom in that. That when you make a commitment to something, when you are dedicated to to whatever it might be, or you say that you're going to do something, let your yes be yes or let your no be no. And that's something that is a good guideline and good wisdom for you and I to remember. That if you make a commitment 
for example, to ministry, then be committed to it. When you say you're going to be there and you're going to do this thing or you're helping somebody out or whatever it might be, helping a friend move, then you let your yes be yes and you let your no be no. But don't say, well, you know, if it works out, maybe I'll be there and, um, you know, hopefully it will. We'll have to wait and see in the him and han that can take place. You know how that goes. And there may be times where you say, you know what, I, I don't know right now. Or I, I can't commit, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. I, I know sometimes people say, well, if it's the Lord's will, then I'll be there. And it's kind of like, I understand what James says. That James says, you know, don't think that tomorrow automatically is going to come. And so if the Lord's wills is what you say, but keep it in context in the book of James. James saying, don't boast about tomorrow. Don't just have automatic confidence that tomorrow's going to come because tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. So you say, if the Lord's will. But if you're going to make a commitment to a friend or to ministry, let your yes be yes, and you know what? Let your no be no, and it's okay to say no. It's okay to say, I can't commit right now because I can't do that, or I can't promise you I can be there. And I would rather have that, somebody say, no, I can't do that at this moment, and let their no be no. Then the him and ha and, well, maybe, and it, you know, just kind of, if I'm there, just plan on me being there, you know, and I've had all kinds of answers like that. It's like, what is that supposed to mean? Are you going to be there or not? Are, are you going to commit or not? And you see, be men and women of integrity when we give our word. That's the first thing that I get out of this. The second thing is, that I see in this vow that I don't believe that she was offered up as a burnt offering. The reason is, is because, first of all, God would not allow that, according to Leviticus. Human sacrifice was absolutely forbidden. But I believe what happened here is that she would be given over to service there at the tabernacle. It's interesting, I did a little digging on this, In Exodus chapter 38, verse 8, as it talks about as they're constructing the tabernacle, they're talking about the bronze laver, that when they made that, that it speaks of the women that are there assembled at the door of the tabernacle. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22, it also speaks of the women assembled there at the door of the tabernacle. It's kind of like you remember in 1 Samuel when Hannah was barren, and she made a vow to the Lord, if you give me a son, then I'll dedicate him to you, Lord. And she had a son, and so Samuel would be dedicated to the tabernacle. And I believe this is what happens here, that she's dedicated there perhaps to the tabernacle and the service of the tabernacle, never to be given over to a man. So that's why she goes with their friends and they go in the mountains and, and bewailed her virginity in the mountains because it was really important back in those days that, that in that culture that she be married and she have children. It was important for him to have an inheritance. This is his only child. And, of course, we saw in the law that when, you know, there were no sons, that the inheritance would pass through the daughters. And so Jephthah has no one to give his inheritance to. And she's going to be dedicated over to the service of the tabernacle and given for service. But look at her heart here in verse 36. It's amazing. She says, My father, if you've given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you 
of your enemies, the people of Ammon. She's wanting to honor her dad. She's wanting to honor the Lord in this. What a sacrifice that she is giving up knowing that she will never marry and she'll never know a man and never have children. That she's going to give herself to the dedication of the Lord. So I believe that's what's really taking place here. It's interesting when you and I do come to the Lord that Jesus would say that you count the cost. And there are those times in our lives where there is going to be sacrifice in giving to the Lord and in serving the Lord. It's a wonderful act of worship and devotion to the Lord when we do that. I can't help but think about that one who came to Jesus as he was getting into a boat ready to cross the Sea of Galilee. And he had seen all the excitement of Jesus healing the multitudes and, and all of this. And he said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus turned to him and said, really? Because foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You're really going to follow me wherever I go? I don't know where I'm going because I don't have a home. And, and I'm, my pillow is a rock. And there's going to be costs and there's going to be sacrifice if you follow after me. There was another that said, Lord, I'll follow you, and, but let me first go home and bury my father. And it wasn't that his father was dead and Jesus was insensitive in saying to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But what that man was saying to Jesus when he said, I'll follow you, except I want to bury my father. He's saying, I'm going to go home and I'm going to stay there until, you know what, my father passes away. Jesus is saying, you follow me now. You put your hand to the plow and you don't look back. Jesus wasn't being insensitive. That wasn't the point. And in our following the Lord, there is going to be cost and sacrifice at times. Are we willing to do that in our devotion and worship to the Lord? The woman, that beautiful woman there at the temple who gave two mites all that she had. Sacrificial commitment and giving to the Lord. What a beautiful act of worship, I believe. And so here is it demonstrated in Jephthah's daughter. And so in chapter 12, we see this conflict after he brings victory. Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over to Saphon, and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. So Ephraim, the guys at Ephraim, come to Jephthah and said, Why didn't you call us? And because you didn't and we didn't share in the victory, then we're going to burn down your house. They're threatening him. Now you remember back in chapter 8 of Judges. Remember? After Gideon and his 300 men defeated the Midianites, that who came to Gideon complaining? It was the man of Ephraim, wasn't it? And they said, why didn't you call us? There's no record of Gideon calling them. He called Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh. No record of Ephraim. So Gideon deals with them diplomatically and with grace and gives a soft answer. He says, listen, you guys played a part. You caught the princess of, of Midian. That's an important thing, and they were satisfied with this. Here the men of Ephraim are a lot more threatening and harsh and, and, and coming against 
um, um, Jephthah as he says, I'm going to burn down your house because you didn't call us. And so Jephthah said to them, My people and I were great in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life into my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon. And the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? He said, I did call you, and you didn't come. So why are you threatening me? Why are you coming to battle against me and the, and the Gileadites? You know, there are people that they want to share in the victory, but they don't want to engage in battle. We have ultimate victory through Jesus Christ, don't we? But it is a battle as we're in this world. And it was Paul that told Timothy, you be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You're going to endure hardship as a good soldier. We're told to put on the whole armor of God because we have the spiritual warfare that takes place. And there is going to be battle that's going to take place in our lives on this side of eternity. Yes, the victory has been won, but Satan is still going to throw those fiery darts against us, isn't he? And I pray that you and I would be ones, that we would put on the whole armor of God because battle is going to come. And you know when the battles are going to stop? When we go home to be with the Lord. The Lord is going to come against you and against me. What did I say? <laughs> Satan is going to come against you and me. So did I catch myself there? <laughs> hey, you guys are listening. <laughs> Satan's going to come against you and me and trying to discourage us and bring us down and tear us down. And we're going to have to do battle. So here's Ephraim. I'm going to continue on, all right? So here is Jephthah. He gathered all together all the men. I can't believe I said that. The men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You are Gileadites, or fugitives of Ephraim, among the Ephraimites and among the Massonites. And the Gileadites seized the Forbes of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when the Ephraimites who escaped said, Let us cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? And if he said no, then they would say to him, then say, Shabaleth. And he would say, Sabaleth, and for he could not pronounce it right. So they were supposed to say, Sabaleth, and they would say it wrong because they had an accent, the men of Ephraim. And they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. You know how people have different accents. Is it creek or is it crick? Tomato, tomato. You know, that kind of deal. So they could tell if they were from Ephraim by the accent that they had. And so they had them say this certain word. But here it shows us something that, that we need to remember. Here is brethren going against brethren, right? And this is how far they had regressed. And this is the condition of the nation at this time. It is just so sad when brothers in Christ go to war against each other. If you go to war against somebody else, if you have groups of people go to war against other groups of Christians, everybody loses in that. And so here, these, this battle that Jephthah would go against the Eda Ephraim and the men of Ephraim, and so verse 7, Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. In verse 8, after him, Isban of Bethlehem judged Israel 
He had 30 sons, and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage and brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. Then his band died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel. He judged Israel ten years. And Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Aijalund in the country of Zebulun. And after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, judge Israel. Parathonite, that is a name that means the top of the hill. It was a mountain that apparently that he lived on where he judged from there in the mountains of Ephraim. And so uh, he had 40 sons, verse 14, 30 uh, grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. And Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried in Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the mountains of the Amalekites. And so some of the other judges, these next three listed here, not much told about them, tells the length of how they judged Israel. And now when we go into chapter 13 next time, we're going to be in chapters 13 through 16 looking at the life of Samson. Much to learn from from Samson is he's going to judge Israel. And so, Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for this truth and blessings that have been given to us in your word. And so, Lord, we just come and we ask that you would help us to be ones. That, Father, just as we learned tonight, that we would not go in our own way, but, Lord, that we would desire to know your way in every area of our lives, knowing that you will bring victory. You've brought ultimate victory. But, Lord, victory as we do battle in our lives today on this side of eternity, that we would enter into the fullness and the richness of what you have for us as we walk in your ways, step out in faith, Lord, as we trust in you. Father, I pray that we would be ones, that we would understand that just as Jetha was rejected, that, Lord, that we will be rejected at times by people that we know that are very close to us, even family members that we love. And so, Father, I pray that that we would understand that, Lord, that you are the one that gives us an inheritance.